0: All right, here at Meadowbrook, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. That is what we are focusing on here. Uh, we are wanting to meet you wherever you're at and wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. If you're brand new to the faith, if you're not even maybe a part of the faith, but you're just curious and checking things out, if you've been walking in the faith for many, many years, uh, we want to help you take your next steps. We took some time this last week, and these flowers are up here today in honor of Irene Langman, who passed away. We had our funeral on Wednesday night. Uh, and this is a weird thing this say about a funeral, but it was a really good funeral. Like, it was a really good worshipful, Christ-honoring, Irene-honoring time. Uh, and Irene is one who I would think of when I would do this little spiel, right? If you were helping people with their next step, so whether you're brand new to the faith or whether you're Irene Langman, there is more to go. There is more to learn. There are more things to step into. And I said at the funeral, one of the things I admired about Irene at 96 years of, of age, uh, she never stopped being hungry for the things of God. She never stopped wanting to learn. My last conversation with her before she passed, passed away she was saying oh pastor I read this in my book today and he pulled out her Bible and she was Ephesians 3 and she was so excited about what she had read in her devotional time that morning and I said man may I always be that hungry however long I'm here on this earth may I never feel like I have it all figured out or or I don't need to learn more Uh, she was so inspiring in that way she was always looking for her next step she was always looking to grow and so we are wanting as a church to help you take your next steps wherever you're at and whatever that looks like. And we focus on that primarily in three ways, upward, inward, and outward. We want to take our next steps upwardly in our relationship with the Lord, in our knowledge of Him, in our communion with Him, in our understanding of Him. We're wanting to take our next steps inwardly as He does His work in us to make us more like Jesus, to bring us into holiness, to transform us, to set us free. And then outwardly, as we live out our faith with other people, as we engage with our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we engage with the world around us, what are our next Steps outwardly. We're wanting to be growing and intentionally focusing on these three different areas. So, we have been in a series for the last number of weeks. We have a couple more weeks left after this one that we've called Jesus and the Sinners, which maybe isn't the most creative name uh, for a sermon series. But we've been looking at just specific stories in the Gospels where Jesus encounters people in their sin. And we're wanting to look at what does it teach us about Jesus, what does it teach us about our sin, and what does it teach us about other people's sin? Because it's very, very easy for us to get focused on what other people are doing wrong and not deal with our own stuff. And so we're wanting to see how did Jesus engage with sin when he found it, and what does that have to teach us about who he is, who we are, and how we can engage with other people in love as well. And we have seen over and over again throughout the series, there's one group that has shown up over and over again in these stories, and they show up over and over again in the Gospels, and they are a group that is called the Pharisees, and so if you've been around church for a while, or you've read through the Gospels, you know that word. And so we're going to take some time to talk about how does Jesus specifically engage with the Pharisees. Now, he's been engaging with them throughout the Gospels. He's been engaging with them throughout some of the stories that we have looked at already. But in where we're going to go today, uh, we're going to see really the, I think, the, the harshest rebuke we see Jesus give anybody ever in the Gospels. And it comes for the Pharisees in the text that we're going to look at today. And when it comes to the Pharisees, they are something of the villains of the gospel. They're always opposed to Jesus. They don't really believe in who he says he is. They're always plotting against him. And they would be actively involved in the plot to send him to the cross. And so because of that, the Pharisees easily become the villains of the story. And so because of that, Pharisees become a thing that we Christians call other Christians when we don't like the way that they're acting. It becomes something that we can use to kind of villainize other people who don't believe the way we believe or who don't walk with Jesus the way we walk with him or who understand the scriptures differently. And so Pharisees become something that we call other people. And what I want us to do today as we read through this rebuke of Jesus for the Pharisees is not to say, oh, I know someone else who needs to hear this, but to say, no, this is a mirror actually for me to look at myself. Because as we look at the Pharisees today, you're going to see they're actually a lot like us. And it's easy to make them the bad guys, and they are, uh, but they are actually a lot like us. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Matthew 23. And hold on to your hats because this is going to be a long one, all right? If Irene were here, she would have said amen, I think. Matthew 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone who swears by the gift of the altar is bound by that oath, you blind men, which is greater? The gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we'd lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Whew. So... I mean, we've talked a lot in this series of where Jesus meets people in their sin and often meets with them with a tremendous amount of compassion, right? He meets them where they're at. He meets them with grace. He meets them with understanding. He meets them with patience. He calls their sin, sin. He calls them out of sin, but he meets them with grace and compassion. And here, we don't actually see that grace and compassion in the same way. This is a, a statement of judgment. It is a statement of rebuke. It is a statement of correction. And and again, I think this is uh, the most most intense rebuke that we see Jesus give ever in the Gospels. Uh, We see lots of correction, lots of teaching. We see a lot of these things, but this one is unusually intense, right? There's just, I mean, woe after woe after woe after woe after woe. There's an intensity to it, and it's all coming against the Pharisees. And so who are these Pharisees? Just very quickly, um, like any time in our own uh, church history, There, in Jewish history were people who would just interpret the word differently and emphasize things differently and have different views of things. And so there were groups that would kind of, they're all Jewish, but they would be just different kind of streams of Judaism. They would have different uh, emphasis on things. They would teach things in a different way. And so a few things uh, happened as Israel had been out in exile, right? The the Babylonians had taken over the country. They kicked all the Jewish people out. They destroyed the temple. uh, And then eventually over time, they came back into the land. But while they were gone, the faith had to adjust a little bit, because the law had said you have to go to the temple, and you have to do sacrifices, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. And a lot of that couldn't be done while you were in exile, and when there's no temple anymore. And so they had to kind of adjust, how are we going to live out our faith? How are we going to be faithful to the law? And so as they come back into the land, one of the groups that emerges is the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a very conservative group in a lot of ways, and they were calling the people of of Israel back to the Bible. I've heard it said they were the first back-to-the-Bible movement in history, uh, where they were just calling everyone back to Scripture, that we have to be devout in our commitment to the Lord, we have to be faithful to the Word, and so here are some of the things that highlighted what this particular stream of Judaism was all about. They were incredibly devoted to the Lord. They were worshipful, they were devout, they were committed, uh, they were committed to their interpretation of Scripture, they were passionate about the Word, uh, they were trying to figure out how do we live this out? in a complicated world. How do we make this accessible to the common people? Uh, The Sadducees were another group we see in the scriptures and they were kind of a wealthy group. They were sort of uh, an aristocracy of sorts and they ran the temple and everything. And they weren't concerned about the common people at all. They were concerned about the temple and and the prestige of that. The Pharisees were very, very concerned about the masses. Just how do we get the scripture into into everybody's hands? How do we get everybody following it? How do we make this accessible so that you can all Live this out in your day to day life because we want to take the word seriously and we want to please the Lord. Because of that, they were very popular amongst the people. They were highly regarded, and we see even in this uh, rebuke of Jesus that there was an esteem that went with it, right? And and they were uh, they were appreciating that. They liked the the titles and the privileges that went with it. But they were very very popular. They were concerned about the culture influencing their religion. They were very concerned about, well, how are the, the Romans influencing the faith? And we gotta protect the faith from these outside influences. They were very concerned about how to keep the faith pure and devoted to the Lord when there were all these, uh, different cultural influences that were pulling in all these different directions. They were passionate evangelists of their faith and they consistently called, called God's people back to the Word, to the Word, to the Word. Come back to the Word so that you can understand the Lord. Come back to the word so you can please him with your life. Come back to the word so that we can demonstrate our faith and be faithful to what God wants from us. So that's just a snapshot of who the Pharisees were. Now, if you're looking at that list, you might be saying that sounds an awful lot like some things that I care about. That sounds an awful lot about, like, the types of things that Christians should be interested in, right? We should be devoted to the Lord. We should be committed to the scripture. We should be concerned about where the world might be pulling us in different directions. We should be evangelists. We should be coming back to scripture. Like, those are not bad things. And so these are the things that highlighted this movement. And this is, these are the things that the people of the Jewish faith looked at, and they, they said, we want to be like that. They were greatly admired. And so it's easy to villainize them in the, the understanding that we have in the Gospels. And yet, if we were Jewish people gathering for our weekly worship service, the Pharisees would be people that we would admire. Like, they would be people that we want to be like. Now, Jesus obviously sees a lot of toxic stuff going on as well that needs correcting. So they were not perfect by any means. But I find it just fascinating that the most intense rebuke we see Jesus give towards sin in the Gospels is not towards the tax collectors, it is not towards the sexually immoral, it's not towards the adulterous woman, it's to the really, really, really religious people. It's to the, the church people. Like, that's, that's where that rebuke is coming, is to the devout. Uh, and I think part of that must just be because they should know better. Right, If they're that committed to the Lord and that committed to the word, they should know better. And so our job today, as we read through this, we're not going to hit every single part of it just in the interest of time, but as we read through this, is not to say just, oh, this was a rebuke for Jesus for a particular group back in the day, and it's not to listen to it and say, oh, this is a rebuke for the person in the pew over there who really needs to hear this, but to say, okay, I probably find myself on this list. There are ways in which I am like a Pharisee in a good way. There are things here that I would also be very passionate about, and so are there also ways where I need to be corrected here, where I need to hear this for myself. Okay, so this is not something that you brush off on other people. This is where we say, "All right, Lord, what do you have for me today?" In this, what are you speaking to me as we go through this together? So, as we just touch on these things briefly, uh, verse two and three: the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, Jesus says, "Sit in Moses' seat." So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. And so Jesus sets up this this idea that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, that God has given Israel teachers, and then they are in the tradition of Moses, and their job is to sit there and say, this is what the law says, and this is how we live that out. So Jesus says, they're doing their job in that way. They're telling you what the law says, and that is good. So do those things. When they call you to the word, listen to them as they call you to the word, but don't imitate their lives, for they don't practice what they preach. And so there's a disconnect between what they are sharing publicly and how they are actually living that out. And so we're just going to highlight as we go uh, things that we're learning here. So the Pharisees didn't practice what they preached, very simply. The Pharisees didn't practice what they preached. And the Greek word for hypocrite in the Greek, uh, literally means a play actor, like someone who goes on stage and, and does plays. And in the world that they lived in at that time, when an actor went on stage, they would wear a mask, and as you wore the mask, you would become that character, right? And so that was how you showed that you're going to be, you know, the, the angry person or the warrior or the, the bride or whatever. You would wear that mask, and as you wore that mask to go on the stage, that's how the audience would know. And that Greek word for hypocrite literally means someone who speaks from underneath. And it's someone talking from behind the mask. That's the picture that they're getting. And so that's where we, when we talk about a hypocrite, we get this idea that someone is two-faced, right? It's that what you see is not what you get. What you see on the surface, the mask that they put on, is not actually the real person. It's not actually how they are Are under it. So they're putting on a mask that they're presenting to the audience. Uh, and so that's the word Jesus is using for hypocrite, that these Pharisees are people who are putting on a mask. They are, are not, they are showing off something publicly that is not the true person underneath. Now here's the thing. I think we all do that. I don't think there's a Christian anywhere who perfectly practices what they preach. I don't think there's a Christian anywhere who perfectly lives out everything they believe. I don't think there's anybody who does that. You see the politicians, they all often hurl the accusation of hypocrite against each other, You know, whatever side they're on, the other side's hypocrites. And the thing is, it's often a little true. Sometimes it's a lot true, but there's often truth there. That's why it's such an easy punch to land when you're arguing with somebody. Because I think everyone's got a little hypocrite in them. No one perfectly lives these things out. As it came to the Pharisees, Jesus seems to be saying, there's a real disconnect here between the public face that they're putting on and then the private person underneath. And so we want to be aware of that in ourselves. Where am I preaching something that I am not fulfilling in my private life? And, and I don't mean literally preach like I'm preaching right now, but where do I have convictions? Where do I have biblical beliefs that are not lining up with the way I'm living out my life? Where is my public persona very different from my private persona? And if my private persona were to be fully displayed on the stage, right now, how would I feel about that? And when we see those areas in our lives to say, okay, that needs some attention right? That needs some accountability, maybe. That needs some prayer, certainly. That needs some help. And so where can I start more and more to bring my public life and my private life into unity so that there isn't that disconnect, there isn't that difference there? So Jesus starts off saying that the Pharisees don't practice what they preach. Moving on, verse 4. He says, they tie up heavy burdensome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And so they were good teachers. They knew their Bible very well. They were very happy to say this is what we need to do to be obedient. This is what we need to do. Uh, As we'll get to, they also added a bunch of extra rules along the way that weren't in scripture, but they are are very good at doing that part of it. But then Jesus says they are not themselves willing to lift a finger to move them. They're, They're not willing to help. So the Pharisees piled on without helping out, and we've talked about this throughout the series, that I think sometimes as Christians we believe our job is to speak the truth, and then once we've spoken the truth, we're done, we've done our job. And that's actually not what Jesus says, even a little bit. Our job is to speak the truth, our job is to share that. If if we see someone and we're concerned about where they're at, we should talk to them about it. If we see sin, we should talk to them about it. We are to do that part of it, but we're not allowed to do that and then just walk away. We're not allowed to to just pile on without actually helping out. If you care about someone enough to say, hey, I am concerned about you in this area, or I see sin here that is concerning to me, if you are caring enough to do that, you are signing up to help out. You are signing up to support them. You are signing up to walk with them. Uh, We've come to this verse many times in this series from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so you are working on yourself, and you're working on yourself so that you can be a help to that other person who is also struggling. Our attitude towards sin is not, wow, look at what you did that's so horrible. It's, hey, I'm dealing with my stuff, you're dealing with your stuff, and as I work on myself, I want to help you with yours, and hopefully you're going to help me with mine, and in that way we are all getting cleaned up as we pay attention to that together. So we don't get just to yell at people for all of the specks that we see in their eyes. If you're pointing it out, you are signing up to help. And if you don't care enough to help, you don't care enough to speak up. Jesus says the Pharisees would pile these things on people. They were happy to put on the conviction, happy to put on the the rules, happy to put on the scripture, and then they did nothing to help. They did nothing to support. That is not our job, according to the teachings of Jesus. We had a lady in a previous church, and she was uh, pretty new to the faith, And she had just had an incredibly painful, traumatic life. And she was an alcoholic, and she was wrestling with that. And she was here every single Sunday. And I still can see her in my mind sometimes. She was always at the back. And during worship, she would just stand and lift her hands to heaven with tears pouring down her face. And she often stank of rum when she came to church on a Sunday morning or or she had had it the night before and was hungover the next day. But every single Sunday she was here and she fought so hard. And she would, you know, five steps forward and five steps back. And and it was just her, her life had been so horrible and she just fought and fought and fought. It was just always a struggle for her. But she was here every single Sunday seeking the Lord. She was here every single Sunday worshiping him. And she didn't have a lot of money, and she was in a rough situation. And there was an older lady in our church, and she was very proper, and she was very conservative. And, uh, and she came to me once, and she just said, I don't appreciate how that woman is dressed at church. And, you know, just bare midriff maybe, or, or bare shoulders, or nothing crazy. But just this, the lady was bothered by it. And she just said, I just I don't think that that's appropriate for church on a Sunday morning and I said, okay, well, I, I don't know that I agree, but are you taking her shopping? Like, are you, are you giving her a gift certificate? Are you doing something to solve the problem? Uh, and she didn't do any of those things, but she also never complained again after that. And, and I don't know if there would have been a way to do that that was sensitive or not. But the point is, is that when we see a problem, like, it's no one's job just to sit here and point at problems in any context in life. There's No, no one's job is to just sit there and criticize. And if you see a concern in any area of life, you are absolutely entitled to it. And if you care enough to speak out about it, you care enough to sign up to help that person, right? We are not ever just dropping truth bombs and then walking away, right? We are helping each other through these things. Jesus says in verse 5 to 7, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and, and the tassels on their garments long. So these were religious things that they would bind around their head and the tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. And so, again, the Pharisees were a very popular group and there was a prestige that went with it. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, they, they actually love that side of it. They love the title. They love the position. They love the perks and the benefits. They love the reward. They love the attention. Um, and so the Pharisees demanded attention, and they sought position. They were looking for that And, I mean, attention on its own isn't always a bad thing necessarily, I think, and in terms of position, there are people in our lives who are going to be in positions, and some of us have more money, and some of us have less money. I mean, some of that is just natural to life. I think the question that Jesus is bringing up is, what's your motivation here? And for the Pharisees, it seems like they were not maybe primarily motivated of, oh, we want to help people and serve people. Maybe they were more motivated by, we like what this does for us. We like what it does for our name. We like what it does for our, our pocketbook. We like the, the power and the prestige that comes with this position. So, again, maybe on their own, not entirely bad things, but, but why are you seeking these things? Why are you uh, on that journey along the way? Jesus would correct it in the next verses, 8 through 12. You are not to be called rabbi, uh, which means teacher, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, he's not literally saying like you can't call your dad, dad. That's not what he's getting at. He's talking about the religious titles that were used at the time. And it's one of the reasons some of you will come to me and call me pastor and I'll say, hey, just call me Chris. Chris is fine. This passage is one of those reasons is that we don't need to elevate titles. We don't need to elevate certain roles. Jesus says, hey, ultimately God is the teacher and you're all brothers, you're all equals. So we don't need to elevate, ourselves over each other in that way. There are gifts, there are jobs, there are roles, but we don't elevate the people in those things. Jesus says, you know, when he says don't call anyone father, he doesn't mean your dad. He means don't call your your teacher father. Don't give them that honorific title. Uh, Ultimately, it's all about Jesus, and any good teacher or instructor or father is ultimately just pointing you to Jesus. That's their main job, is to help you know Jesus and understand Jesus. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted and that is an idea that shows up multiple times in the New Testament it's that either way you're going to be humble and you're going to be exalted it's just a matter of are you going to exalt yourself and get knocked down or are you going to humble yourself and let the Lord lift you up either way both things are going to happen to you it's just a matter of how painful is it going to be as you get there and, and what's that process going to be like? And as always, in so many ways, Jesus turns everything upside down, that Jesus comes as Lord. He comes as literal Lord, as God in the flesh, and he's on his knees, and he's washing feet. And he's not saying, pay attention to me as Lord, and worship me as Lord, everybody, and give me the adoration that I am due as Lord. He would have been fully justified in any of that. But Jesus gets on his hands and knees, and he washes feet, and he says, this is what you are called to do as followers of Jesus. We don't exalt ourselves. We wash feet in the kingdom of heaven. We follow Jesus' example in that way. We head into the woes next and we're just gonna, we won't hit every single one, but touch briefly on them. A woe is kind of a a warning cry in scripture that means ultimately judgment is coming. It's kind of a despairing cry. Um, I have seen in art and in movies and things where in this, when this passage of scripture is represented, Jesus is angry and like furiously denouncing. I've also seen it done where he is weeping. In, in sadness that judgment is coming. Uh, as with our text last week, there's nothing that tells us what his actual emotions are. We don't know for sure. But he moves into this section of Scripture, starting in verse, th- verse 13. "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you two-faced, you mask-wearing people.'" You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying that to you personally? When you're trying to evangelize and you're trying to share Jesus, like he says, you are, you are working so hard to do this and you are missing the point entirely. There was something going on here where the Pharisees interfered with people trying to get to heaven. That there are people seeking the Lord, apparently. There are people wanting to know him. They are wanting to come into the kingdom. And Jesus says, Pharisees, you're not actually coming into the kingdom, right? Because to come into the kingdom, you have to trust me and follow me. And the Pharisees weren't doing that. Others who are trying to get to heaven, the Pharisees are actually interfering with. And that's a scary thing to get rebuked for by the Lord. That's that's a startling one to me. That people are trying to get to heaven and apparently we can just get in the way of that. And uh, I think sometimes when it comes to sharing our faith there's things that are going to be challenging, and there's things that are going to be offensive. And, and Jesus said, hey, the world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. And so sometimes for us, if we're going to call sin, sin, we're not going to be very popular with people. And that's following in the example of Jesus as well, and that's something that we are supposed to do. And yet, at the same time, if people are going to, to reject the gospel or reject the truth that we have to share, reject the Bible, if they're going to do that, let's make sure they're rejecting the message and not the messengers. Let's make sure it's not because we Christians are being abrasive or aggressive or arrogant or condescending, because I think that turns people away from the truth of the gospel as well. So the truth will be offensive at times. Scripture says the gospel is like a stumbling block for people. Not everyone's going to accept it, but let's make sure if they reject it, they're rejecting the message and not the messengers, Let's make sure that as we are following after Jesus, we are growing in the fruit of the Spirit so that even if we do have a hard truth to share, even if we do have a a difficult thing that we need to speak out about, it is being wrapped up in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control that the Holy Spirit is moving his fruit in us even as we share his truth and that we're not the ones who are the problem. We are not the ones who are getting in the way of people coming to know the truth. Woe to you, verse 16, you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath, you blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath, you blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? And so the Pharisees were really good at nitpicking. They kind of they were good at uh, sort of, you know, how do we lawyer this verse to make it say kind of what we want it to say? And they are getting into the weeds here a little bit as it related to what the law said about swearing oaths. There is nothing in the law that said specifically specifically swear by the gold or swear by this or swear by that. Uh, None of that is in there. This is stuff that they're just kind of adding to it. And so they are, you know, every single one of us has, has the scripture and we all have an interpretation of scripture. And the Pharisees were taking their interpretation of it and especially the things that they were adding to it and they were elevating it higher than they should. So the Pharisees elevated their interpretation of scripture to the level of scripture itself. And they weren't understanding, I guess, that, oh, we're adding things to this and we have a view of this that isn't actually in the text, but we're making it as if it's equal to the text. And so everyone needs to follow what we say and all these extra things that we're adding to it. And they were just missing the scripture itself. And so Jesus is saying, you, you're, you're coming up with some weird biblical ideas here that aren't actually in the Bible. You're adding it to them. And they were doing it in the name of trying to be saved. I've heard the picture used of, if you can imagine, let's just say, this is a ridiculous example, but let's just say that God's law said, thou shalt not sit in a red chair. All right? So let's say that's a commandment from Sinai on high. Thou shalt not sit in a red chair. And so what the Pharisees did was they said, okay, let's be very clear, we are not allowed to sit in a red chair um, but are you allowed to, like, lean on a red chair? Like, the text doesn't say anything about that. So maybe we should just have a rule. Let's just, you stay six feet away from red chairs. And so we'll we'll add that. So now it's not just, thou shall not sit in a red chair, but let's sit six feet away from the red chair. And then, like, but what about, like, a burgundy chair? Like, there's there's a little red in there, and the text doesn't say anything about that. So how about, okay, so you will not be within six feet of a red chair, and you will not sit in a burgundy chair or anything that's any other shade of red as well and so again that's a ridiculous example but that's what they were doing with god's law was they were in the name of trying to make sure that we don't cross any lines we're going to add extra boundaries to it and we're going to add extra pieces to it and so coming from where i come from the pentecostal church that i grew up in when i went to bible college you had to sign something that said uh you're not allowed to play cards that was part of the the ethical statement that you had to sign you're not allowed to play cards and so I asked about it when I was signing up, and they said, well, cards can be used for gambling, and cards can be used for fortune-telling, and so we just want to stay disconnected. And I'm like, right, but like, crazy eights with my family, right? Like, what's what's the concern here? And they just said, you know what, We just it's better, we want to be above reproach, we just want to stay away from this altogether. That's the example, that's the kind of thing that the Pharisees were doing. And so we would say, yeah, gambling is a bad idea. And yeah, no one should be involved in fortune telling. But if you want to play go fish with your grandkids, that's probably fine, unless you're gambling with them, in which case you shouldn't. (laughs) And so it just, it's so easy. It becomes so easy in the name of holiness to start adding things, right? Just to be safe. We just want to be saved. We would want to make sure we're following this well. It feels very devout. And so the Pharisees had their view of Scripture and all their added rules of Scripture, and they were adding all those extra rules and their interpretation to the level of Scripture itself. Where to say, if I disagree with a Pharisee, they would say, well, you are disagreeing with God's Word. You're not disagreeing with us. You're disagreeing with the Bible itself. And so it makes it really hard to argue with a person like that. And it also makes it really hard to, to wrestle through the word. And maybe we need to learn something here. Maybe there's another way to look at this. It can be really, really challenging. And I'm, I'm sometimes just kind of a bit staggered when I hear some Christian preachers and leaders talk about God's word. Just there's a humility missing sometimes. Because like I love this word. And I, I've given my life to the study of this word. And I am the first to admit God's word is perfect and I am very much not. And so I am preaching to you guys every week as faithfully as I understand his word. And and I with prayerful study and, and time with the Lord, I am always up here just saying, to the best of my understanding, with a lot of prayer and study, this is what the word of God means. I'm under no illusions that every single thing I say is perfect. I don't think anybody has God's word figured out yet. I think we'll all probably get to heaven and find out that we miss some things. But that should cause us to approach it with humility. and And a humility combined with a hunger that says I'm going to keep digging and I'm going to keep searching and I'm going to keep reading and I'm going to keep pressing in for more and I'm going to be willing to be humble before God's word and I'm going to keep digging into him for more along the way. Moving on, verse 22, 23. uh, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guys, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Uh, And that word picture there at the end is gnats were unclean animals and camels were unclean animals. They weren't allowed to eat either of those. So he's saying you focus on the minuscule thing, the smallest thing, but you're swallowing a much bigger problem, right? You're not allowed to eat camel either. And so while you're focused on this little tiny thing, you're ignoring this great big thing along the way. And so it's a, an interesting picture. Uh, the Pharisees were meticulous about the, quote, easy things and missed the hard things in the Bible. Um, the, the Word of God had said in the law, that you were to tithe on things that grew in the ground. Nobody really thought that meant spices. Like, they thought that meant your wheat and your, your kind of bigger things. So the Pharisees, wanting to be meticulous, said, we're going to tithe even on our spices, even on the, the, that level of, of meticulous devotion. So if you can imagine, you know, going to the bulk barn and getting your, you know, your pepper, and then, like, measuring out a tenth of it, um, you know, with that level of precision, because we want to honor God with it. So the heart was absolutely right. Jesus actually commends them for that part he says you should have practiced that you should have practiced the former thing so to be meticulous and that devoted uh, is not a bad thing in and of itself but jesus says you have missed way more important things so great you're a meticulous tither good you should be a meticulous tither are you committed to justice like you're devoted to the word you're devoted to doctrine good you should be devoted to the word we should be working on our doctrine are you merciful is their faithfulness being lived out in your life? And so it, it's a weird rebuke because he's saying, okay, that's good, right? That level of tithing, great. That is meticulous. Is it perhaps over the top? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's very, very devoted, and they're wanting to honor the Lord with it. Jesus says, good, you should do that but you've missed out on justice and mercy and faithfulness. There are, there are bigger things here that you've missed out on entirely, and it's so easy for us to lock on to the things that we're kind of good at or the things that we have committed ourselves to. Uh, you know, I, I come to church, and I read my Bible every day, and I do those things, and, and I think Jesus' answer would be, Good, that's good. You should practice those things. Is there mercy in your heart towards the people around you? Right? You're a faithful tither. Beautiful. We should be. That's wonderful. Are you committed to justice in your life? Because it's easy to tithe and say, I did my part. I'm done. But what about the poor person down the street who needs help? Right? It's easy to say, hey, I show up for church and I bring my kids to youth and and we do our Bible and, and everything is great. Good, good, wonderful, excellent. Are you merciful towards the sinner in your workplace who doesn't know the Lord yet? Is there mercy in your heart towards them? Jesus says there are bigger things that you're missing while you're so meticulously, you know, tithing out your cumin. Where's justice in your life? Where's mercy in your life? Where's faithfulness in your life? It can be very easy. And the thing about something like tithing is it's really measurable. Right? I can, I can tell you. You can look at my budget every month and you can see where I tithe, right? It's right there. Black and white. There's no gray area. Did I tithe or did I not? Oh, I did. There it is. Like, it's easy to measure. Questions like mercy are a lot harder to measure. Do you have justice in your life? That's harder to measure. And so we, there's a human nature thing where it's so easy to focus on numbers and, and those types of things and miss the bigger, more abstract, more difficult things of how are we living out God's justice in our lives? How are we living out his mercy in our lives? How are we living out his faithfulness? It's all important, Jesus is saying. So don't lock on to those smaller, easy things and ignore the bigger things along the way. Verse 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And he'd use another picture in this passage about a cup, right? Like you're the outside of the cup and the inside of the cup. And so the Pharisees put their attention on outer appearances and not interchange. And so these are some whitewashed tombs in Israel today. And the reason they were out in the open and the reason they were bright white was because for a Jewish person, according to the law, if you got too close to a dead body, it made you unclean. And then you had to go through the purification process. And so they were bright white so that even at nighttime, you would be able to see at least the glow and you would be able to stay far away. You would never accidentally uh, expose yourself and make yourself unclean and have to go through the process. And so the white was there uh, as part of a, a reaction to the law that says, hey, we just want to make sure everyone knows that there's a, a dead body here. And Jesus uses it as this picture of these Pharisees. Like, you look really nice and shiny and pretty on the outside. You look good. You look righteous. There's an appearance of that there but on the inside Jesus says is actually death like on the inside there there isn't anything good and the Pharisees had put all their hope I think if we do enough good things God will be happy And if we study the scripture enough, God will be happy. And if we get our theology perfect, God will be happy. And if we do all of these things, we can earn his blessing, we'll earn his favor, we'll earn our place in heaven. And that's actually the opposite of what the gospel says, which is that you can't earn anything. You are welcomed into his favor, into his blessing, into heaven by his grace. He invites us in and forgives our sins as we turn away from our sins as we follow after him. And so it's it's a complete flip-flop, again, of our human nature, which says, if I work hard enough at this, I will get it right. If I work hard enough at this, I will make it happen. If I work hard enough at this, God will love me. And the gospel is, no, actually, that's already all been dealt with on the cross, And all the favor you need is gifted to you in this gospel. And your job now is to seek him. As you seek him, the Holy Spirit will change you from the inside. You'll get a new heart. You'll get a new mind. You'll get a new creation. And then you will live out of that. And then your outside will follow as your inside is transformed. And it's harder in a way because I can't make that happen. Right, It's out of my control. I can't make myself transformed to be more like Jesus. I can just seek him and I can seek the filling of the Spirit, and I can read His Word, and I can engage in Christian community, and as those things happen, trust that I am being transformed. The Pharisees, they just seem to want to do it all themselves, right? We will make this happen. We will be obedient enough. We will master the Scripture enough. And it wasn't working, right? If anyone, by mastering the Scripture, could be made godly, it would have been the Pharisees. They knew it better than anybody. But the knowledge of God's Word alone is not enough. If it was, then they would be the example that we're looking to instead of the the recipients of all of these woes. And so we are to present ourselves to the Lord. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are to engage with the Word. As we engage with the Word, our minds get renewed. As we're filled with the Spirit, our hearts are transformed. The inner stuff begins to transform from our sinful self to our purified self because of what Jesus is doing in us. And then as the inside changes, the outward follows. Because when my mind is renewed and my heart is pure, I stop doing the things that I used to do out of a sinful mind and a sinful heart. That the inner change comes first in this gospel, and then the outward stuff follows. Almost done. Verse 33. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Even in the rebuke, there is mercy, right? God is saying, I'm sending you people to turn you around. I'm sending you people to teach you. I'm sending you prophets to warn you. He is not leaving them alone on their self-destructive path, but they are not willing to listen. They are not responding. And Israel had a long history of this. This is not something that is only about the Pharisees. But the Pharisees rejected people sent from God, including, and most importantly, of course, Jesus himself. But Israel had a long history of just not liking what the prophets had to say. And the prophets would come and say, Israel, you're off track and judgment is coming if you don't turn around. And Israel's reaction was often, kill that guy. We don't like that message. And that happened over and over and over again, which Jesus also alludes to in our passage. And so uh, they reject the people who are coming to warn them. They're going to reject the apostles after Jesus, that he is coming and he is sending truth to them, and they are not willing to hear it. And I think a lot of the reason they're not willing to hear it is because it didn't look the way they thought it should look. Right? Jesus' theology didn't line up with their theology, and so they rejected him entirely. That's not how we understand the word. And because you are speaking in a way that's not how I understand the word, we're going to ignore you entirely. And we are told clearly in scripture, when you hear teaching, you're to weigh it out. Like, you don't automatically ever believe anything. Weigh it out. Go to the word yourself. Anything I ever say, go to the word yourself. Check it. And then if you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. And we'll have that conversation. But they were just rejecting people out of hand. Because it didn't line up with what they thought the word meant. And because their commitment to their view of the word was so intense, they actually missed the messengers from God who are coming to to help them, coming to teach them, coming to warn them. And so there's a warning for us there as well. We should always be willing to listen. We don't need to agree with anybody, but we should always be willing to listen. We should always be humble and prayerful and saying, Lord, hey, maybe there's something I'm supposed to learn here. And even if that person's theology doesn't line up with me on everything, that doesn't mean that they don't have anything to share or anything for me to learn. And there's a humility that we can take as a posture there as well. Verse 35, And so upon you, upon this generation will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. You see, A for Abel, Z for Zechariah. A to Z, just a symbolic way of saying all these prophets who have been murdered uh, by the people of God, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. And, uh, and not that, I mean, every generation suffers for their own sins, but because they were going to reject Jesus, uh, there were going to be consequences to that as well. So the Pharisees followed the patterns of their ancestors and would reap the consequences is just never learning the lesson never learning that every time we kill a prophet, something bad typically happens afterwards. That These prophets actually came to do good for us, and we ignored it. Jesus is coming to do good for them, and they're ignoring it. Jesus is coming to bring them back to God, and they are ignoring it. And the consequences were going to fall. And And not long after Jesus died and left this earth, uh, the Romans would come, and they would take down Jerusalem. They would take over Israel, and, and that would be part of the consequence of rejecting the Son of God, is that there would be, you know, the the wrath of God would come uh, because they ignored the way out that he was trying to give them to spare them from that. Jesus wraps up verse 37 saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until you welcome me as the one who was sent to help you, uh, you won't see me again. And it's interesting. There's times in scripture where God uses masculine language to relate to us, and there's times where he uses feminine language. This is a feminine picture, obviously, of a mother hen. But the Pharisees had the love and compassion of Jesus, but they rejected it. Jesus just, oh, I just want to, oh, just like a mother hen, I want to gather you in. I want to keep you safe. I want to protect you. I want to keep you from the errors of this path that you're going down. I want to bring you to myself. I want to bring you home, but you were not willing. And that's where I've seen Jesus in the movie versions, just weeping in this moment. Like, I so long to just, just hug you close. But you are shoving me away. You are pushing me back. The Pharisees had the love and compassion of Jesus. It was available to them, and they rejected it. And that's really the biggest problem of all of these things, is that salvation had walked into the room when Jesus walked into the room. Like our way out, our way back to God, our way to getting our sins forgiven, our way into heaven. In Jesus, it had walked into the room, and the Pharisees said, No, thank you. That doesn't look the way we thought it would look. And they missed the Savior that they were praying for and waiting for. They knew the Bible better than anybody. They knew that a Messiah was coming, and they were waiting and praying for that Messiah. And he was right in front of them, and they missed it. He was there with love and grace and compassion and forgiveness, and they missed it. He was right there. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done here. So just by way of a quick recap of where we've been today, what were the Pharisees? What was the problem that we're dealing with here that Jesus is correcting? The Pharisees didn't practice what they preached. The Pharisees piled on without helping out. The Pharisees demanded attention and sought position. The Pharisees interfered with people trying to get to heaven. The Pharisees elevated their interpretation of Scripture to Scripture itself. The Pharisees were meticulous about the easy things in the law and ignored the hard things, the bigger things. The Pharisees put their attention on outer appearances and not inner change. The Pharisees rejected people who'd been sent from God. The Pharisees followed the patterns of their ancestors and would reap the consequences. The Pharisees had the love and compassion of Jesus, but rejected it. And those themes there we see in a lot of these other stories where the Pharisees show up in the Gospels. Jesus, in this passage, is kind of summarizing all the problems that have been going on. And so we've seen a lot of these ideas at play already, even in this sermon series and some of the stories that we've looked at. So again, our job today is not to say, boy, do I know some other people who are Pharisees in these ways. Our job is to say, okay, well, where am I then on this list? If Jesus were here and he were talking to us today, where would I fit in to this? And and am I piling things on people and not giving any help whatsoever? Am I in any way elevating my view of Scripture to Scripture itself and and maybe missing then on what God is trying to speak to me because I'm not humble in how I'm approaching the Word of God? Am I really meticulous about some of the easier things of walking with Jesus while I ignore some of those bigger things? If you're like me, there's more than one, probably. And again, our job is to look at this and not go, "Wow, these were villains at one time in history or, or these are villains that are other Christians and not myself, but to say, okay, the word of God has come today and it comes at times to correct and rebuke and to, to build up what needs building up and to tear down what needs tearing down. So where am I in here? What is Jesus speaking to me through the example of the Pharisees? And ultimately, again, the biggest thing the Pharisees did was they, they just turned away from the Lord. And Jesus' concern in a lot of these things is you're not actually finding God, Pharisees. You're you're doing the things, but you're not actually finding Him. And so where am I drawing near to Him? Where am I finding Him? Where am I centering my life on Him? And where am I on that journey to to take those next steps with Him? Would you stand to your feet with me, please? As we get ready to worship and close in prayer, Lord, uh, keep speaking, Holy Spirit. The word is not easy today, but it is your word, and we trust that it is good. And so we say, Holy Spirit, keep speaking as we ponder these things, as we discuss them on our way home, as we sit on them for the next day or two. Keep speaking. Lord, uh, we thank you for this rebuke because it comes out of your love, out of your desire to draw us closer to yourself. Lord, that is what we want as well. Uh, You have been good over and over and over again. Even your rebuke is a sign of your faithfulness and your goodness to us. Uh, Even as you showed your goodness to the Pharisees in this moment, as hard as the words are, your grace and compassion are present nonetheless, even as you correct them. So, Lord, bring that to us as well. Let us find your way with hope and not condemnation. Let us find your way in the way of Jesus, faithful to your word, full of your spirit, and walking in the way of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.